Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of Ranching Reboot. This is number 103. In today's show, Kevin Muno, a first-generation rancher, shares his insights on running a ranching business in Southern California. With two 8,000-acre ranches, Kevin has a lot of experience in cattle transportation, grass-fed beef production, and implementing regenerative practices. He also talks about his business, Perennial Pastures, and how he is focused on e-commerce sales to reach a population of 20 million people within a two-hour drive. If you're a rancher, aspiring rancher, or just interested in learning more about this industry, be sure to share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues. We would love to hear your feedback, so don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And if you want to support our show, please click on the sponsor links in the show notes. Finally, if you have any suggestions or questions for us, feel free to send us an email at redhillsrancher at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to the episode. Yo, what's good, my homies? It's your boy, Red Hills, and I'm here to tell you about these Bubble Link beef snacks. Let me tell you, they straight fire, you dig? I'm talking about real high-quality beef, seasoned to perfection, and slow-cooked to give you that melt-in-your-mouth taste. And let's not forget about the packaging. It's tight, it's fresh, and it's perfect for on-the-go snacking. Now, I know what y'all might be thinking. Red, ain't no beef snack gonna be good enough for me, but trust me, these Bubble Link beef snacks are straight-up game-changers. I'm talking about that real beef flavor, packed with protein, and made with all-natural ingredients. So if you want to elevate your snack game, snack like a boss, then you got to try these Bobo Link beef snacks. I'm telling you, they're the real deal. And don't take my word for it. Try them out yourself, and you'll see why I'm hooked. Trust me, you won't be disappointed. Peace out and stay snacking, my homies. My name is Red Hills Rancher, and I'm the steward of the Red Hills. And if you didn't know, you do now. Bow wow. All right, crew, I need to come clean. For the last two years, I've been taking grass-fed beef organ supplements. A few months ago, I reached out to several different brands, and I'm pleased to announce that I found a brand that I can align with. Introducing OneEarthHealth.com grass-fed and finished beef organ supplements. Look, we all know that the liver is one of the most nutrient-dense foods available. Packed with iron and B vitamins, it's a great source of choline and folate. Sourced from grass-fed and finished cattle with no fillers. I take the beef liver blend and the organs blend, which includes spleen, pancreas, kidney, heart, and yeah, a little more liver. I take them every day and I feel great, except when I forget. Then I notice I have less energy and less focus. Check them out. Go to www.oneearthhealth.com forward slash Brian Alexander or click the link in the show notes. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Kevin Muno. Welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Brian. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're in Southern California. What's the weather like out there right now? Ooh, it's a, it's a pretty day. Yeah, blue skies and 65 degrees. Did you have to look or is that just what it always is? <laughs> That's usually what it is, yeah. Unless uh, we get some some big Pacific storm coming off of off the ocean. 65 at the beginning of February is pretty rare. And that's, that's about what it was here just a couple hours ago. It was really, it was a really beautiful day here today too, but that's 65 is definitely not normal for South Central Kansas. Like let's be clear. 
Yeah, yeah, right on. <laughs> so, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your operation there in uh, in Southern California. For sure. Yep. So I'm a first generation rancher. I was born in Los Angeles and was a baseball player my whole life. And I got into ranching by the way of nutrition and eating grass fed beef. So I, I played baseball center field for the Toreros at University of San Diego and played there for five years. And while I was there, I got really into lifting and CrossFit and CrossFit brought me to the paleo diet. And okay. I had a trainer there who was super good into nutrition, started fueling my body with great grass fed protein and immediately saw my results in the weight room and on the baseball field improved and actually inspired my whole team to kind of go paleo, which was pretty cool. And actually I just messaged that strength and conditioning coach the other day because he's still involved in the CrossFit world. And we want to start doing some promotions with local CrossFit gyms and uh, get them some of our products that we're producing now. But yeah, about two years ago, I bought a local cattle company, fifth generation company. They had a, 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 death in the family sadly of the patriarch and it was two widows running the company and they just didn't want to do it anymore um so i was kind of first in line through some other efforts i had going on in the back country and uh had a, a previous ranching operation back there and um was trying some different things and and so called them up and said hey i'd like to buy the company and they had 290 pairs of black baldy cattle at the at the time and two leases two eight thousand acre leases uh, for a total of sixteen thousand acres under management and we're blessed to be able to buy the company with some investors and we've been running ever since we we did that right during the middle of the pandemic i raised some capital uh with us with a small group of investors to to do that and yeah so we're here we are in february 2023 uh, two years really into probably the cattle side and then one year really into the marketing side. So still a ton of, uh, a lot to learn, but we're, we're kind of on our way and selling to, you know, a population of 20 million folks within a two hour drive of us. So, um, it's been fun. That must be rough to have that much, that many potential customers that close. I tell you, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, well, it's, uh, it's a huge, huge, huge blessing. Um, I mean, farmers markets, I think aren't an option for a lot of folks in the country, but for us, they've been a huge blessing because each one of these cities that we're in has hundreds of thousands of people and we can go and meet them and shake their hand and tell them about what we're doing and our whole journey and how we're improving soil health and, you know, the like, what's the process to do like that. out there. It's, it's pretty active. Yeah. We're in mostly coastal cities, Carlsbad, Encinitas, La Jolla, little Italy downtown, and they can be a ton of foot traffic for sure. And folks just looking to get more in touch with their food and the folks that are there, the demographics are great. It's, you know, they're, they're kind of on some path and then, when they hear about regenerative, they pretty inquisitive. Some folks know they've either watched kiss the ground or they've uh, taken a soil health course or, you know, they've read about it somewhere, you know, dirt to soil or what have you, or 
they ask about it and they're inquisitive and they're like, Oh, okay. So it's like better than sustainable. And we're like, yeah. So, um, they're, they're good. They've been a godsend for us in launching the business, but our focus hopefully here in the short term future will be more e-commerce sales, which is where we're going. What do you say when somebody comes up and says, well, what is regenerative? What does that even mean? I try to break it down as simply as I can to them. And usually what I say is that we mimic nature with our agricultural practices. We try to graze our cattle in a way that mimics bison or wildebeest herds moving across grasslands and they move in bunches and they stay in an area for a short amount of time and they often don't come back to that area for a long time. And, you know, this method of agriculture has been proven to build soils all across the world. And that, those healthier soils lead to more nutrient-dense grass, which leads to a more nutrient-dense animal and a more nutrient-dense human. And they kind of shake their head and go, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> what kind of grasses do you have on, uh, well, I guess let's talk about your mountain ranch. What kind of grasses are there? Are they like native grasses or are they, quote, improved planted stuff? We don't really have any improved pastures, no irrigation. Um, a lot of them are... I guess what you could say, naturalized annuals, uh, mostly I think from seeds that the Spanish brought over. So a lot of uh, annual oats and um, uh, cheat, you know, cheat grass, uh, soft chess. So mostly cool season annual pastures, Brian. And then uh, we do have a decent amount of cool season native perennials, though, too, our state grass nacella pulchra or california purple needle grass is kind of our foundation cool season perennial but we do have warm season perennials scattered out there and as we've started to run some safe to fail trials and different densities via polywire and some of the fencing infrastructure we've put in we've seen some of those start to come back so we're excited for potential of both cool season perennials and warm season perennials kind of on the same ranch at the same time. I think that's one of the huge benefits of running a ranch in California is you do have the potential, I believe, for year-round green because we don't get a winter. We don't really get snow, you know. So if you're able to bring those warm season perennials back and get them rooted and get them thriving, I think there is potential for kind of a varying sort of, you know, year-round green structure, potentially, um, that that's the goal, at least that we're you know future landscape goal that we're working towards is um, perenniality in, in both cool season and warm season. I could get behind that. I, that'd be nice to be somewhere where I'm growing warm season grass all year round, and you know a little bit of cool season too. That'd be right. like a wonderful place to live. But I guess the limiting factor to that is going to be you know rainfall. You know, out here in the plains. Um, I get, I'm assuming I get a little more rainfall than you do. Okay. Normally I should probably get more rainfall than you do. I don't think I had more rain than you did last year. <laughs> like something like 12 inches is all we got. And we're supposed to get a lot closer to 20 or 22. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's how it can be like for us here too. You know, our average on the coastal ranch is 12 and then in the mountains is 18, but 
you know, it can get pretty low on each one of those extremes, you know, down to eight on the coastal ranch or 10 or 11 at the mountain ranch. And, but this year it's been good for us. You've probably seen California in the news. We've gotten some of those big atmospheric rivers that have come over and dropped some nice, good moisture for us. So we've, we've gotten 10 inches on the mountain ranch just in January alone. So very blessed to have that this year. How much of that went down the Creek? I know. Right. Uh, good amount, good amount. We have pretty sandy loamy soil. So, uh, and it wasn't all at once. I think Northern California got it w- way worse than us as far as the whole atmospheric river deal. But a lot of it still went in the Creek. We don't currently have a super effective water cycle where we're at. We still got a lot of work to do decent amount of barrier ground when we took over the mount ranch it was one big eight thousand acre pasture and we've been putting in a lot of high tensile fence and of the high tensile fencing pastures i think we have 12 now and we subdivide some of those high tensile pastures with polywire to get more density and more animal impact but we have a lot more fencing to build and more water to put in so hopefully our that will get better and better here i'm excited for this year because we finally baselined our soils and we jumped in with uh, the regenerified group that Gabe Brown and Alan Williams and Shane new have started, which is sort of the third new uh, regenerative certification. So they came out last year and baselined our, our soils on a couple of our ranches. And so I'm excited to finally really get into some, some very, you know, intensive management and longer recovery periods and things like that. But it's, it's been definitely a, um, a journey here in the first couple of years. It always is a journey. When somebody asks me what regenerative agriculture is, it's, you know, it, it's hard to pin down an answer, right? Like, and you kind of have to tailor your answer to the person that's asking the question. But at the end of the day, it's not always about a destination. It's about the journey and that's what regenerative ag is. It's a journey, not a set of practices or principles. I mean, it's a, it's, it's an entire change of thought process. Amen. Yeah. Amen to that. We do ranch tours every month now and we get 30 to 40 people there. And that's one of my main messages is, Hey, this is a journey and hopefully you're back here in five years and you'll see, you know, a good amount of change. And even 10 years down the road, you'll see more change. But all we can do as producers is be transparent about the efforts that we're taking and how it's affecting the land and what outcomes we're receiving. But yeah, it's, it's not a straight line. That's for sure. One thing I noticed on your website is uh, you wrote an article about the four pillars of regenerative ranching. You want to talk about those for a minute? Sure. Yeah. I picked those up from one of the early classes that I attended on YouTube, YouTube University. And that was from Jaime Elizondo and Johann Zietzman. And I thought it was just a good way to kind of explain some of the practices, you know, um, that are involved in, in as simple way as possible, right. And some of the easiest things you can do to kind of start down this path. Right. So, so yeah. The correct calving season, just calving with nature is one of the easiest things that you can do in terms of just pull your bulls out at the right time of year and 
put them in at the right time of year, right? That's one of the things we can do as ranchers. That's very easy. It doesn't involve a lot of capital or investment in infrastructure. It's just a change in management. So trying to time that obviously with where nature's calving, you know, so for us, that's, we're trying to calve in the spring when our green up comes from the cool season grasses, just so that, that colostrum and mama's milk's highest nutrient density. So that's, you know, first step there and then adaptive genetics, right. Is uh, another key, key one for, for us, as you start to push your cattle, you know, with, with high, density and um, try to have them eat farther down on the plant it's important that those animals can still stay in good body condition for that and you're also moving them around a little bit more on the ranch too so it's important that you know they're 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 fit enough to do that that they're they're not lazy and uh you know they they can they can work in that higher density grazing system and then yeah the last two high stock density grazing and correct supplementation are super critical. I think, especially for dry land environments where you're trying to hit the land as hard as you can get a really high level of utilization, clear those growth points, knock a bunch of litter down on the ground, heavily dung and urinate an area, and then allow for a recovery that is timed with the species that you want to see, which for us is, a lot of those cool season perennials I was talking about earlier. And then as you work on your adapted genetics, if your herd isn't as adapted as it, as it should be to start, then you got to supplement a little bit there in the beginning until you get the composite breed that you're working towards or the genetics that you're working towards. So supplementing a little protein or minerals, things like that, just to make sure that your cows stay in as good as condition as they can. Now, We've been a little bit, I guess, less into the whole corrective supplementation thing. I think this year we will try some free choice minerals, but we haven't really done a ton of protein supplementation. And early on, we inherited the herd, the 290 pairs of baldy calves or baldy cows and calves. And there was just a lot of older cattle. They hadn't really cold in quite some time. So we just started off with a pretty big ground beef program. And I think that's one of the biggest benefits of having your own direct to consumer meat business is when you cull, you make money, you know, so you can turn them into ground beef and we're selling ground beef for something like, well, we sell it for $12 a pound at farmer's market. If you get uh bulk, we're selling it for 11. So uh, it's quite, quite a good price on, on the ground beef. Sounds like I need to rent a truck. So that's a little more. We started aggregating, Brian, from from other from other places in the country. We've started doing that. Yeah, because this is where the population is. I mean, twenty million within a two hour drive. If you just do the the stats on our county alone, three million people in San Diego County alone, and if you look at on average, folks are eating around fifty five pounds of beef in a year. And if you're looking at a conservatively of carcass of about 500 pounds, it's roughly equated to around 300,000 head of livestock in just our county alone. So we have one of the largest ranches and we're barely even meeting, not even close to 1% of that demand. So I aggregating from like you, 
because I did the same math for my county in relationship to my ranch and my herd. And yeah, it's, it's not even a, not even a hair on a fly on a hair on a fly's butthole. Right. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. How many people in your county, Brian? Uh, like six thousand, maybe. Wow, not many. Not yeah. many. Our county seat. Uh, they're probably below two thousand now, and then there's another community of just over a thousand. Yeah, and maybe we're under six. We're we're pretty rural. It's wow. Yeah, how far are you from St. Francis, Kansas? Uh, about, it'd probably take me about four hours to get up there. So I'm, I'm okay. 20 miles from Oklahoma, right in the middle uh -huh. of Colorado and Missouri. Okay. And, gotcha. So okay, I know, you know, my buddy, Mike Calicrate. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that's the only place I've been in Kansas is to, to his place to check out his facility there. Uh, I've never been to St. Francis. I've looked at it on Google earth and I don't think my place looks anything like that my place looks like well what you see behind me but uh right right you know, rolling hills native grass i get a little more summer he gets a little more winter he gets okay rain i get a little more 100 degree days okay you know gotcha it, there's a lot of people that live way out to the west side of kansas that'll say oh that that big blue stem doesn't grow there oh that indian grass oh, it will grow here well, it's in the ditch right next to your fence line. I'm not sure why you're saying that. It's, Mike and I have a good laugh. You know, we've laughed about that in the past because, you know, you drive down I-70 and there's guys out there to be like, oh, that, that grass won't grow here. Well, yeah, it will because it's growing in the ditch right, you know, right across the fence from your pasture. So. For sure. Yeah, it was great to go visit him and really we're following kind of his recommendation on a vertically integrated strategy. You know, we're going to be investing in our uh, own processing facility this year and uh, super excited about that and doing another round of capital to, to make that happen. So we'll, we'll be able to control, you know, almost everything from paddock to plate, everything except the trucking, right. Coming back to that a little bit, but um, yeah. So a lot to be uh, thankful for, for, for Mike and his kind of recommendation on that and, you know, pushing us in that direction heavily. That's what Mike does. He has a tendency to push people in that direction. Like we have a probably right around the same time you guys were getting started, uh, just as COVID was starting to shut down the world. I had a lot of conversations with Mike, and I was pretty close to. Uh, I got pretty close to thinking about building my own packing plant, and then I remembered where I live and realized <laughs> I might be better off letting somebody else take that risk. <laughs> For sure. Yep. Because it comes yeah. to access to market. And, you know, the, the people you said, I, I forget the number you said that you have within a two-hour radius. It's like 10 million, like just... 20, 20. Okay, 20 million. Yeah. I don't think there's half a million within two hours radius from me. Right, yep. And, you know, 80% of those are going to be in one city that's yep. almost exactly two hours away. And... You know, I've been doing a lot of thinking. So while, while we're, let's just talk about it. There's a lot of land in the plains. There's a lot of cattle in the plains. And there's a lot of demand east of here in the east coast and on the west coast. And 
yeah, there's a lot of cattle that get finished in California feed yards. Okay. And I know, yeah, that's not, that's not your deal. I'm just like kind of talking out loud here. Right. Uh, and they've got to import a lot of corn over the mountains from the Midwest, basically Kansas, Nebraska, yeah. Iowa, Illinois, wherever they've right. got to import a lot of their feed stuff. And, you know, and as we're starting to see that, you know, these supply chains are starting to fail, not just, not just international supply chains, you know, some regional local supply chains are starting to creak under pressure. And I think that we all need to be thinking about more localized methods of production, you know, production consumption cycles and, and keeping everything as close to home as I can, as we all can. That being said, there's still, there still needs to be a better way for me to get my product from here to help you satisfy demand where you're at. And that's, Amen. and that's, that's real interesting. Cause I was actually looking this morning. Um, it's probably not a coincidence. It's on my mind right now, but I was looking this morning and I had the idea about, um, what a company would look like. That's a cross between FedEx and Americold. If you're not familiar with Americold they're they've got a network of, uh, freezer and refrigerated warehouses across the mm. country. Okay. So what would it, I wonder what that would look like. Like if you could call for a pickup, like I take one of my processor, they get it processed from there. It goes to an Americold warehouse and I get a text that says, Hey, you got this much in the warehouse or I have, you know, inventory on the app. And if there's somebody that needs it in LA, that's bidding $12 a pound, it can tell me how much it would cost to ship it from their warehouse to the distribution point and it could be picked up there and I know all those costs. I think I just invented an app for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. And it's just, it's amazing at how many apps there are out there just getting into this e-commerce thing. You know, we're on Shopify, but there's a whole network of apps that Shopify developers are developing that plug into Shopify. Like, for example, we have this one called Recharge, and we use it for our subscription and boxes. And you pay you know, an extra add-on fee, not very much, to get that app that plugs right into your store and it looks at your inventory and it bills the person, you know, every month and sends us some a notification on the order. And they can log in and change their membership if they want to skip a month, this, that. And I didn't have to do anything, you know. So the ability Weirdly, Brian, my first job out of college was actually software sales, and I spent one year selling tech software. It's a very successful company. Uh, competes with Salesforce. If you've heard of Salesforce, they're a customer resource management tool out of San Francisco. And Slightly uh, out of my wheelhouse, but I have heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. If you've done any kind of sales, they're, they're the 800-pound gorilla in the in the room as far as that app goes, but you can build any sort of app on this platform. Right. And I think we're just starting to see the benefit of those kind of all coming together. And, you know, the software as a service model is amazing. You know, somebody like you could have an idea and go out there and create an app and, you know, have it ready and deployed fairly quickly where 10 years ago, that was much more difficult, you know? So Maybe somebody like you could go make an app. I don't like 
<laughs> I make podcasts and I post on social media, and that's about the that's kind of where I end right now. <laughs> that's more that you're you're more tech savvy than I am. I don't I don't have a podcast. Yeah, if only you knew. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. So, um, tell me about your cows. Yeah, cow, so we cows you running out there. Yeah, so we we bought those black baldies, and we've been crossing the baldies with uh, some good Mashana genetics. We we bought um, some semen from Kit at Pharaoh, and we bought uh, Zim, Zimbab a good amount of him. Um, he's kind of a I think he's I think he's famous now, uh, pretty famous as like a very well known Mashona, and uh, although Johan. Zietzman does not, not like that name, um, but that that's his name on there. So uh, we, we, we've AI'd a lot of uh, our black baldies to him. And then, uh, yeah, all the replacement cattle that we've bought after we've done big callings have been fairly cheap Corini heifers or young cows at the sale barn. So we've been picking them up for 300 to $500 at the sale barn and We've been putting a um, short magnum on him as a big red Angus bull from Glen Barlow up in uh, Wyoming. Um, and so Gillette, Wyoming, I think is where Glenn lives. And yeah, so we're, you know, going for that efficient grass converting animal that can stay fat in a higher density grazing system, can eat farther down on the plant and utilize more grass and, and stay fat and give us a calf every year. So, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of where we're headed as a way of composite. I'm might get even a little weirder. There's a guy out of Australia. That's part of, I, I, I don't know if Troy Gaylor is in the Johan Zietzman's profitable ranching WhatsApp group, but he's Name got some familiar. Really, yeah. He's got some really amazing Baran and Nguni genetics that he's got out of Australia and he's almost, ready to start shipping to the state. So we've been talking to him too about getting some straws in and, and throwing that into the mix. So I'm not after any sort of particular percentage, Brian, I'm just kind of out there for what works. And I'm a big believer in safe to fail trials. And one of the things that recently came to me, actually, um, as far as transparency goes and having our own facility is, you know, you work with these processors and, asking them to do anything out of the ordinary is just like, you know, pulling an arm and a leg. But when we control it, we'll be able to probably, you know, cause we want to, I, I don't know if we're going to do it or not, but it, if it's worth it and we see a return on it, we might genetically test the herd. We'll definitely test it to see which bulls are performing best and who's breeding the most. So if we're going to do that, we might as well figure out what percentage each animal is. And then, we could almost sell that like, Hey, you're eating a half Corianni, half Angus. You're eating a half Moshona, half Angus. You're eating a, you know, quarter Nguni, half, you know, three quarter. Right. So like people can start to kind of get a sense, like we've been looking at this whole uniformity thing. And I think from um, like a body type perspective, we're moving in a certain direction, but I don't know. I, I just think that, uh, you know, people can kind of choose for themselves, like what sort of, uh, type that they like. And, you know, we'll, yeah. So I just had that idea the other day. I was like, well, our composite probably won't be something standard for five to seven years. You know, this process takes a long time to kind of 
arrive at what you think is is good for the ranch as far as locally adapted breeds so why not try a few different types and just see what's good and what does and what thrives and i I think a lot of them will thrive because they're they're all very resilient you know unimproved breeds but you know it'll it'll be it'll be fun to see you know the eating quality and how it kind of correlates all the way through i'm excited for that do you have any of those zimbab calves on the ground yet we do yeah how do you like them I i like them a lot i like them a lot put any on the rail yet no not on the rail yet are they gaining yes okay and you said that you were putting red angus on your sailborn corrientes yep any thought uh any thought to putting some zimbab in that bloodline we've definitely done that too and um we actually bought so we we do ai first 21 days and then second 21 days we've been doing some cleanup with Mashona bulls. We bought 12 Mashona bulls from Jaime Elizondo in Florida from that midnight ranch that he was previously managing, uh, in Crescent city, Florida. And we, yeah, we, we've had some bulls get out and breed some Coriani. Um, but then I was like, why not? You know, like that, it'll, it'll be a smaller animal, but we have such a big ground beef program. Um, I don't know if you've gotten on this train yet, but um, it might just be a coast thing or whatever, but, uh, we're selling the crap out of ancestral blend, which is like the liver blend heart and heart and liver in the, in the ground beef. So like that, and then we do snack sticks and hot dogs. So we have like a pretty big ground beef program. I'm like, you know, like, you know, Johan always talks about the fastest gain for the smallest frame. And I'm like, well, that could certainly be a Mashona Corrieni, you know, um, <laughs> you know, for sure. Like, I'm really, really excited to see how that turns out. It'll be smaller like that. That carcass isn't going to be very big at all, but I'm, I'm pretty darn sure it's going to stay fat and be in good condition probably all throughout the year. So, yeah, I don't need to hang, you know, a 1300 pound carcass. Like no. that, I don't think that would make me money. There's a certain point, you know, with the genetic base of a smaller forage efficient animal that, you know, it's, it's just not economical to take a past probably 900 or a thousand pounds, no matter what you do. Right. Uh, yeah. You mentioned earlier cor- uh, a term that I wanted to circle back to. You said corrective supplementation. What did you mean mm-hmm. by that? Corrective supplementation. Well, I, I think you're just pushing them harder. You're having them eat farther down on the plant. So I think the term corrective would just be if they're a non-adapted cow and they can't convert that higher fiber forage into meat and fat, then muscle and fat, then you're kind of coming in and, and correcting what they might more naturally get or, or, that they might more naturally is probably not the best word, but under better conditions would get. So, you know, in, in the dry season, supplementing a little alfalfa um, to kind of help them burn through some of that fiber, I think is kind of where we're at. Or I guess you could say, you know, as I'm thinking here, corrective 
you know, in the way of animals could range for a lot more of their minerals when they had larger pastures and would go from state to state to, you know, minerally dense areas to balance themselves. So they don't have that ability now with barbed wire fencing and uh, chopped up pieces of land. So kind of coming in and correcting that potential mineral deficiency that, you know, they might not get access to on the ranch and, and, and giving them a little bit of that to, to make sure that you're taking care of them. Okay. That makes sense. I, you're talking about ancestral blends and you know that's one of the things on our whiteboard. Um, getting a processor here to do that. It's, we're getting some of them to come around, but we're that's on the that's on the list to do this week is call around for processors and and try to get my summer processing lined up, mm-hmm. and try to do some ancestral blends. But I'm also you know at the same time trying to work out, you know, how do I get my product to more customers? You know, yeah. okay, I've also made arguments about food miles on the podcast before, so don't come after me, people. But um, crap, and I forgot what I was gonna say. Um. So we're talking about your Zimbab calves, Corientes. Um, what have you noticed difference in the way those animals perform between your Corientes and the Baldies that came with the ranch? Luckily, Ryan, we, we were able to probably cull 20 to 30% and probably now up to 40% of that original herd. So it's interesting now that we're kind of down to the ones that we want from the black baldies. Certainly there's a little more shine, I'd say, on the the Coriani Mashonas. Um but the 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 Angus, you know, and and specifically, you know, the the baldies cuz a little bit of that hybrid vigor, they're they're doing great too, you know. We to be fair, we really haven't been for 365 days a year running at high density. So I haven't put them to the full test yet, but they're working harder than they did prior in one big 8,000 acre paddock. So we're moving them around. Um, they're utilizing more grass than they never had. So um, I'm, I'm, I'll be, it'll be more of a test and I'll probably have more to say on that question after this year's worth of grazing, because we're probably going to put in 30 more pastures this year. Um, so, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah, but I think as, as we put more pressure on, on the, the cream will rise to the top and, you know, those, uh, more adapted cattle will just stay in the program rather than be cold. If they don't have a calf, we, we call them. What's the seasonality of your forage like? You know, does do you have a dormant or dry season where it gets really, really poor? And you know, you said you have to supplement with alfalfa. Like I'm feeding mine alfalfa and protein tubs to, you know, to get them through for the same reasons. So how how bad is like your your dormant season? It's pretty long. You know, Mediterranean climates are known for wet winters and dry summer so the wet winter is really three to four months of rain three to four months mostly three of green and then from may till say december we're pretty dry so 
depends if we get any early fall rains, but even early fall, it's not really warm enough for it to start to green up. So like we're, we're pretty green right now. Like now's pretty peak green for us. Um, especially with the, the rain that we had this year, 10 inches in January. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of our, our flow of, of grass. So how do you, the question I'm worried about in my operation is managing the seasonality of what, you know, what I would call quote finished, you know, something with that's been on good grass for a month or two and has actually laid down some extra fat that she's going to need that she would need to carry her through the winter. I, if I took one right now to the processor, um, I mean, it wouldn't have a whole lot of fat on it. He'd be pretty, she'd be pretty, pretty lean. Yeah. So how, how are you managing the seasonality of, of grass and harvest? So what's interesting, Brian, is we actually have, we manage a piece of land up in Montana. So one of our investors uh, owns some land in Opie, Montana, which is Northeast Montana. So um, I'm learning more about colder season grazing climates. And recently the question came up because we butchered some cattle two months ago. So it would have been the beginning of December. And at that point, they'd been on feed for a little while. Um, it's, I think like a month and a half they'd been on feed. Just grass hay put up from the ranch, you know, good good grass hay, perennials, you know, hard grasses. And that that beef's eating well. We're uh, We're getting really good feedback from that beef. So it just led me to kind of, question okay well obviously as a rancher you want to feed as little as possible to kind of get you through the winter right some of these ranches up there are just accustomed to feeding six months out of the year and then it got me thinking and i was like okay well they're pretty much just in a grass feed lot and some guys feed to different levels of body condition right so some guys are feeding up there to feed to really fat body condition and some are just feeding to reduce input costs and get themselves through winter. Right. So I don't know. It's, it, 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 um, and then if you're trying to minimize your feed and do bale grazing or graze through some, like this winter, I think for a lot of, I, I can't speak for Kansas, but you know, I, I talk with Paul Brown a little bit up in, North Dakota, you know, and then Montana. And th this year has been one of those years where bale grazing has been tough and any sort of forage that they're getting underneath the snow is pretty much minimal. But the last few winters, I know he said that they, you know, fed 90 days, I think, you know, it's like the shortest. So they're still out there grazing and they're getting the supplementary feed. So I don't know, you know, we're, um, as far as like eating quality, we have a lot of thoughts on that. One of our partners, Graham Hand, has worked for uh, the Australian meat grading system for quite some time. And uh, they they test a lot more factors than we do. Like USDA tests for ossification and marbling. And they test for like 11 different things like pH levels when the carcass goes into rigor mortis, um, you know, acid levels, like all sorts of different tests that they run because they're Australia produces mostly, they haven't gotten into the feedlot deals as heavily as we have. They produce mostly grass cattle. So 
this whole meat standards Australia is much. So we're going to apply a lot of that to our own facility this year. And I'm really curious just to see sort of what passes that test because that test is highly accurate. Like they've done a bunch of blind taste tests with grass fed and grain fed and they've like pre-tested them on the rail and they say, okay, this is going to eat well and this will not eat well. And the test that they do is highly corollary to like, you know, the actual results, right? So yeah, I don't know. We're we're testing all sorts of assumptions just in terms of when we kill, you know, and then, I mean, so we've killed some animals in the fall down here and we've gotten good feedback from that meat. So like we have acorns that fall in the fall here, you know, and the cattle pick up the acorns, right? So like, does that have a different taste and add to the flavor profile? of the beef. Right. So I, I, I guess that's a long winded answer to your question of like, when are we killing and how are we thinking about carcass quality and all that? It's just like, I think we're, we're definitely, obviously we have a finishing season. Um, and that's, you know, spring through kind of early summer, but we're, we're testing out some other seasons just to kind of, you know, get a feel for if we have fat cattle then, you know, and, and they test open, you know, and they're not pregnant and, you know, and we don't want to wait all the way till spring, you know, maybe we, we run a load through at that point and just get that. That's the beauty of working at the farmer's market too, is like, you see those people every week and you go, Hey, that, that skirt steak I sold you, or Hey, that ribeye I sold you how to eat, you know, how was it? You know, we get directly weekly feedback, which you can't really necessarily get from an online program. Cause you're sending somebody a box of beef and you know, if they don't like it, they might not not ever order from you again and they might not give you a review, you know, so you don't get that customer feedback. I was going to ask you uh, what your experience has been in the farmer's markets, because a lot of the folks that I've talked to previously on the podcast, mostly from the plain states, they say that, like, as far as a gross sales point of view, that farmer's markets don't necessarily pay for the time that it takes them to go do them. But yeah. the farmer's market is more for, you know, getting your face out there and driving sales, you know, to your website later down the week and getting name recognition and, you know, building that initial customer contact that comes to the farmer's market first and then starts buying online. Uh, that doesn't sound like that's your experience. No. And I, again, I think we're blessed with the amount of population that we have. It's certainly not our highest margin sale because we still have to pay the market 10% for being there. And we pay our farmers market workers 20% of the sales. But when we have full inventory in of steaks and bone broth and snack sticks and hot dogs and, you know, all our roast cuts and ground beef and ancestral blend, some of these markets are pulling in for a four hour market, you know, $1,500, $1,800, you know, a market, we're just doing beef, right? We want to add chicken this year, add pork. People are asking us, Hey, what are you, are you do you have plans of producing this, this, you know, so um, for four hours, right. Um, for, you know, let, let's say it's seven hours total. And far as pack in our employees come to our, our warehouse, they pack in, they pack out, they got to drive, you know, 30 minutes to the market. So let's say it's seven hours total. And it's a fifteen hundred dollar market, right? They're making twenty percent. So twenty percent of fifteen hundred is three hundred bucks, right? So they're making three hundred bucks. I pay the market one fifty ten ten percent, you know. So fifteen hundred bucks minus four fifty, right, is a thousand fifty, you know, per market. So 
again, we're just doing beef. You know, there's, there's days where we hit 800, right? So you chalk it up as, Hey, we got paid to market today, but we run a lot of promos there. We're capturing emails. Um, yeah, there's a lot of things that you can do to kind of list build and get product feedback on a new product. Like we just started making beef tallow. Okay. We brought that out to the market, you know, just gone two seconds, you know, okay. We know that's a good seller. We're, we're, let's ramp that up, you know? So it has a value. I, I think if you're not making, if you're making two, 300, I don't know, to be honest, you know, if you're getting that value back from just meeting those people, I think there's other places you can meet people. Um, I think at the minimum, it does make sense to have at least one. That way you have a direct line. You get four times a week. You get to talk to the customers. You develop a conversation. You get some of your early people to write reviews about you, testimonials. Um, but if you're not making a little margin on top of your cost, you know, I don't, I, I, yeah, for some folks, I don't think it makes sense. You mentioned ancestral eating a couple times and said nose to tail. What do you think about it? Uh, what do you think about our boy Liver King? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I just it it boggles my mind how it took people so long to kind of figure that out. And his his boy Paul Saladino, you know, carnivore MD, is kind of caught in the middle of that. But the guy had to know, you know, and he's all about calling stuff out as bullshit you know like kale's bullshit and this is bullshit he should have called bullshit on his partner you know earlier on than than he did and uh you know it's sad but i don't think it's gonna um slow down the trend of folks getting back to nutrient dense eating you know and uh i think it's here to stay you know unlike the plant-based movement or whatever it's just it like i think anything that speaks to our genetic code is is like something like deep down and it, it sticks it, it it stays there you know and that was me like what what is it now 10 12 years ago um i'm 35 you know so when i was in college and i first read dr lauren corndane's book on the paleo diet and he was like yeah evolutionarily we've been eating this way for thousands of years i was like yep oh, that makes sense i mean nature always bats last and you know, we're, certainly our genetic code changes a little bit, but I don't think it's changed that much since our, you know, since those days. So, well, what is it? Ninety-eight percent of an animals are edible, but only two percent of plants are edible. Something like right. that. Right. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I I think that there were people that knew that could have said something, and you know, not not to. I don't know Paul Saladino at all not, not to throw any shade at him, but he had to have known. Yeah. He had to have known. Yeah. Now, for sure. But I, I guess it just shows you that, you know, the guy had a plan. He knew it was all for show, but he had to have known that he was going to get caught. That's the part that baffles me. It's like you should, he should have had a better plan for when he got caught. Right. 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 Exactly. Yeah. I, he, he, I think he denied it originally and then owned up and I think he's got some legal stuff going on now too, which, you know, it is what it is, but yeah, I like Saladino again. I think he's bringing, I love, he's just 
aggressively, blatantly consistent with his media. I mean, I love that he's going to the stores and he's looking at the back of ingredient boxes and just calling people. Like, I love that, you know, and he's, he's brought a ton of people to, to us, you know, this ancestral blend, like people are watching his deal. Um, uh, you know, some of the Sean Baker, some of these other carnivore, you know, influencers, and they're like, Hey, I heard about this, you know, I'm pregnant and this and that my wife, we just had our first, she had ancestral blend through her whole pregnancy through breastfeeding, you know, and absolutely crushed it. You know, it's, it's almost like a prenatal, like the choline and the folate and all this stuff they're telling me to take in a supplement. It's there in the liver, you know, and, and the ancestral blend is so approachable tacos, meatballs, meat sauce, you know, stir fry. I mean, and you barely taste it. So it's, something very easy to sell and it's been hugely great for, for our business. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm at the end of the day, I'm grateful for the Solidinos and liver King. He's, you know, his own thing, but um, you know, we're, I think we, we as ranchers owe a lot to the folks that are helping to spread the good message of nutrient dense meat for sure. Well, congrats on being a dad. That's pretty cool. It's awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. You have any kids? Uh, they're all grown and out of the house. Good for you. Awesome. Yeah. Um, what does high stock density look like for you? Like pounds, pounds per acre over a day. How, how are you measuring that? Yeah, it, it's, it's kind of a visual to me, you know, um, four moves a day, shoulder to shoulder, making sure they're in good condition. So I'd say anywhere between 500,000 pounds to a million pounds, you know, to the acre uh, where it makes sense, you know, where you need it. Again, our soils are fairly sandy, not a ton of clay, some capping. So I don't know we're, we're we still haven't run our safe to fail trials. We're doing those in conjunction with putting in our infrastructure. So I want to, I want to run different densities and different recoveries. We're going down to Servando Diaz's place down in Chihuahua uh, two weeks from now to check out his operation. He's been working off 18-month recoveries for a long time and has seen a lot of uh, improvement in his warm season. Uh, actually, cool season grass is coming up, I think. But he's starting to get both cool season and warm season. And that 18 months kind of gives two growing seasons to the, you know, to to the plants to, to see what what does come up. So. Uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, um, as tight as you can, that makes sense, you know, for your management, um, is what that means to me. Is prescribed burning a thing out there at all where you're at? It is. Yeah. Cal fire is starting to kind of get on that deal. Um, I think that's our, our one, supposedly our governor's putting a lot of money into that. We'll see. Um, I, well, not just for not just for like state forest lands and federal lands in California. Like I'm talking, like is there mm. is there any kind of prescribed fire culture with landowners and land managers, private landowners and managers? I wouldn't say culture. No, there's a guy Matt Shapiro who's doing some tests in grasslands at different intensities, I think, and different points of the growth stage. And he's got some interesting research on that. So there's some trials being run, but certainly it's not a thing, you know, for folks to, I think we're so fire averse out here that 
you know, a rancher burning his grasslands, you know, to like rejuvenate them or whatnot. Um, is, is, but I don't know really anybody one, who does that. One bad spark or one escaped fire away from yeah. news. Whereas, you know, yeah. out here, 350,000 acres can burn up in two days and like nobody cares. Right. I mean, not yeah. nobody cares. It was a big deal to those of us that had to go through it, but it didn't make, I mean, it barely was a blip on national news. Right. Yeah. No, it's so is, is that, is that part of your culture out there then? Are guys burning? Or? Yes. We, we okay. have to keep burning on the plains. We have to keep fire on the plains or we're not going to have prairie anymore. Like, mm. um, and I'm hoping to do, do kind of a series about this on the podcast uh, sometime, sometime whenever I get around to it and talk some more about, you know, invasive brush management and the threat of the, you know, how much of a threat that the grassland biome is under in the Great Plains. So here's, here's the numbers. There's 2% of the original native prairie left in mm. the plains. And we're losing that 2% remnant prairie at a rate faster to invasive trees and brush than it was ever converted out to farmland in the first place. Hmm. Interesting. And we're lo and it's the brush that we're losing it to. Most of it can be dealt with, with properly timed fire. Nice. And what can't be dealt with, with fire, it's either bringing another species to graze it or graze at a different time of the year or with higher right. stock density. Like right. almost, and it's hopefully we'll get there. Um, but as, as far as fire, um, I've talked about it a little bit before on a podcast, but I think I was like eight when my dad gave me a drip torch and said, go that way. Mm -hmm. So there's, I have legitimately, uh, that'd be over 35 years of burning experience out here in these Hills. Um, mm -hmm. I was in the Navy for eight and a half years and did some, you know, different kind of firefighting and damage control and, and some leadership training in there and how to lead, um, what they call it a repair locker leader. I did some repair locker leader training. So it's like trying to coordinate different teams, doing different things and that, mm -hmm. that translated well. So, um, how that's relevant. Yes. We burn pastures like asterisks when we get enough rain to do so safely. Um, mm -hmm. or we grow enough fuel to do it in the last couple of years, I haven't been able to stockpile enough grass where I've felt comfortable burning. Like it, it, it comes burning season. I look at them like, yeah, we gotta, we gotta keep this stockpile for another couple months. But anyway, um, yeah, we do, we do quite a bit of burning out here. Um, there's some years where our burn association that we've burned over 20,000 acres, just our little burn association of, of a couple of neighbors and some friends and okay. maniacs. Um, <laughs> we've driven, we've driven an hour and a half as a group. We've driven, we've convoyed an hour and a half west of here to help a friend and help get a burn association started over there. So we didn't have to go help him anymore because we were, <laughs> we love that guy, but it's like, we're not driving over there an hour and a half to help you, but we'll do it a couple of times to train everybody else over there on how to do it. So we don't have to do it anymore. So that's right. That's where we go with burn culture. Um, and I'm not going to say that we have a really, you know, exceptionally strong burn culture outside of my area. Cause we really, we really don't. And it's something that collectively everybody up and down the plains needs to work on. Mm -hmm. 
is land maintenance and burning. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tool, right? It's one of the tools. So used correctly and appropriately. Um, I, mean, I it, think, you know, it's expensive to hire a guy with a chainsaw to go out and hand cut him. I mean, for sure. It, you know, I'm a rancher. My time is worth nothing. Right. So, you know, I can go out and I can cut them down when I don't have anything better to do. Um, but then if you want to get in machinery, you know, that's of course expensive plus an hourly cost and it's got to have a butt sitting in the seat, pulling the levers to make it operate. Yeah. You know, and there gets to be a point where, you know, it, you can be spending a thousand, fifteen, two thousand dollars an acre to clear a piece that's never going to pay that back in production. But, you know, what do you gain? Access. You might gain a creek there. You know, if you clean, clean out a whole canyon, you might gain a creek back. Right. You know, so it's sometimes it's difficult to justify that, like from a strictly business point. Um, yeah. And how that relates to fire is, you know, we're to the point where, there's a lot of land in the Great Plains that needs not just not just restoration, it needs reclamation. And that's the really expensive part. Like you got to get to a point where you can maintain it and you can restore it. First, you have to reclaim it. And in some cases, you know, you may not like not graze it for three years, then go make a 50 foot fire guard around it and wait for the right day in March when it's really, 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 really windy, really, really dry and kind of warm and uh, throw a couple matches in there and see what happens. Right. There's more to it than that. Um, And then even, even after a guy does that, there's, there's other management that has, you know, other management and other things you have to do to deal with, you know, burn up trees if you didn't cut them beforehand and pile them. And yeah, it's uh, complicated, but Fire is definitely a tool that's in my toolbox that, you know, is applied when it's contextually correct. Uh, right. You said something earlier. Uh, you did. You said it without saying it, and I think you said uh, mimic the way the bisons do it, which was uh, what a guest a couple of weeks ago said about bison biomimicry, right? And. The reason that we, another reason that we have these brush problems is we don't understand how the bison use the prairie and use the plains. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about stock densities behind polywire of, you know, 250,000 pounds the acre or half a million pounds the acre, you know, and, and that's really pushing it. Half a million pounds the acre, they're standing shoulder to shoulder and you're moving them four or five times a day to get that much. Yeah. When bison went through here, I don't know, I've heard estimates of 2 million pounds per acre, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, shoulder to shoulder, nose to butt for two days going by. Right, right. (laughs) You know, what was left? You know, what kind of herd effect is that? Right. But the point is how often did they use the ground? How often did they use this land? Right. Maybe an 18-month rest cycle isn't out of line from what the natural world looked like or what the natural system looked like for the very narrow, like very narrow slice of history that the bison were free roaming in the plains. Right. Yep. I I I've been into read I've been into researching and thinking about, 
you know, what happened to native civilizations. Yeah. Like in 50, you know, right around 1500 after Europeans brought disease to Central America, population collapse. And where I, where I go with it was the amount of bison that were in the prairies, you know, and in, and in California, like if I say anything else about bison in California, I'd be completely making it up because I have no idea, but plains bison, I can kind of, I can kind of understand. Mm -hmm. So when you have a mass die off of the people that are living in a continent, all their hunting pressure is removed from all the wildlife, including bison, right? Mm -hmm. So I would, I would almost wonder if the big bison herds that were recorded, you know, from 1860 to 1880, or I'm sorry, 1850 to 1873-ish. No, because that's when we were talking about these, anecdotally, these enormous bison herds. That's when those records are from. Yeah. What if, because of lack of population pressure for the last two to 300 years, what if the bison had reached the point where they were overpopulated for the resource base in the Great Plains, and they were heading for some sort of die-off or extinction due to starvation and lack of resources? Because that's how the natural cycle would go. I mean, everything's a boom and bust. When we have a lot of rain, we have a lot of rabbits born. In the dry years, we have a lot of coyotes because they're chasing the rabbit curve, the rabbit birth curve. Right. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kind of throwing that out there a lot as food for thought. And maybe by grazing, you know, I, I try to let my pastures have... 45 to 60 days of rest because that seemed during a growing season during the winter during a dormant season you know i'll graze stuff down pretty low but i like to i like to kind of a lot of folks would call it flash graze during the growing season because i want to grow as much as possible my whole goal is i don't want to feed in the winter anything i don't want to feed bulk i don't want to feed dry matter in the winter that's silly because i can grow that and i can grow that really easy mm -hmm. my dry matter has got to last me all year and the only thing I want to import is a little bit of protein to get me through, you know, the lean times when I'm not growing a whole lot on the ranch. So that's why, I, that's why I try to graze, get as many pounds on by rapid move. So they're getting the cream of the crop out of all my pastures and those, you know, probably two passes, two grazes that we're going to get during the growing season. And then during the dormant season, oh, we just, we just really slow that down and start letting them have protein and protein tubs. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know there's a lot of folks kind of up north, um, up north and, and west here, up in, uh, you know, the Dakotas and Montana and Wyoming and even, even far south, you know, New Mexico and, and into old Mexico, guys doing 18 month or one year or year and a half rest periods on a pasture. And maybe that is much, maybe that is more appropriate and, and much more in line with the philosophy and the thought of bison biomimicry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I could make a living grazing one year out of three though. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem, I'd really have to sharpen some pencils and see if that would work and see how, right. I mean, it might work. So what have you seen, you know, what, what's your, what's your monitoring strategy? You know, what, what, uh, what are you looking at? What are your, soil health test telling you or your landscape function test like what uh how, how do you how do you get feedback in in this in this type of system that you've been working in well 
soil tests are expensive. And what do you test? And then what do you run that? Then past that, it's what's the baseline or what's the goal of the testing? Is it just to monitor and collect data? A lot of that, like I said, you know, soil testing is pretty expensive. You know, as far as like soil carbon, stream flow function, you know, and I'm on board with doing some testing, but as far as like grid soil sampling, never done any of that, not interested in it. Um, yeah. We monitor areas. So some of my key indicators, um, I like to look at how much grass I grow per inch of rainfall. So after, you know, every rain we get gets recorded and after it rains, you know, I'm out, I'm always measuring grass. I'm either measuring against my leg or I'm measuring against a yardstick that I carry in my side by side that I drive 90% of the days. Mm -hmm. Always measuring grass to see how many inches of brown leaf, how many inches of green leaf, mm -hmm. how many inches of green since the last rainfall. Mm -hmm. A lot of it, I just write down on a notebook, legal pad that I always have with me, mm -hmm. keep a bunch of it in my head. And I just, I try to chart that grass growth over the year how many inches of grass growth per inch of rainfall and how that translates to growth. Um, then the, you know, the yardstick gives me a total bulk measurement and between the, you know, the height of the green leaves, the height of the brown leaves, there's, there's ratios that you can convert that to pounds of, of intake for what the cow is going to have. And then if it's just all brown, you know, of course there's a different, different calculation for that versus if it's all green, you know, it's got to be dried out and you, you only take a percentage of the weight. Um, I watch my creeks really close. Um, well, I used to, when it used to rain here <laughs> and, <laughs> and by watch the creeks, it's, you know, go to the lowest, go, go to the one of the lowest points on the ranch where the water's all running off of it and watch what's coming down when we get, you know, an inch and a half rain in 20 minutes, is the creek going to come red? Is it just going to come up and run or yeah. barely going to move with a little bit of foam in the middle? And over time, what I've noticed is, you know, by, by varying when we graze different parts of the ranch, playing around a little bit with grazing pressure because of terrain, I'm kind of limited in a lot of areas of the ranch, what I can do with poly wire and stock density. Mm-hmm. I'm not getting any younger labor ain't getting any cheaper. And there's a lot of the ranch that I can do strip grazing and, and daily moves behind poly wire on, or, you know, even get real crazy and do, you know, four or five times a day if I wanted to, but that's, uh, I've got about 13% of the ranch fenced off for that right now. And that can maybe eventually grow to about 20%, but that's going to be it. The rest mm -hmm. of it's just going to be, you know, too hilly and too broken, too vertical to, to do much with, or mm -hmm. I just, I just can't figure out how to get, get a fence there, get a fence across, you know, like you, there's never enough fences. There's never enough water. And I think a lot of people that are like, have started down the regenerative agriculture path and start, once they start subdividing and rotating and seeing the results of that, there's not enough fences, there's not enough water. And I think a mm -hmm. lot, a lot of guys will say that. For sure. Yeah. And I, I think that's something that I've been talking about a lot. Um, Graham Hand and I talk quite a bit. He's, he's a guy out of Australia, you know, and he runs these ramp regenerative agriculture mentorship programs through HMI and he's done three now. And 
I mean, we, he, he's a student of like barriers of entry to change. This guy, Doug McKenzie Moore studied like, how do people change and what are the barriers to entry? He's kind of boiled it down to infrastructure is why we're not seeing a lot of managers be super successful, successful in changing landscape function. You know, the ease of the moves is, you know, probably number one reason of whether or not you, you know, so I've kind of boiled it down, you know, to, well, if it comes down to infrastructure, you know, what is the payoff and how do you, how do you fundraise, you know, and put capital to that investment and, and then explain to people, you know, what, how quickly am I going to, am I going to pay that off? Like what, what does that mean in terms of increasing my utilization or my, my stocking rate on my ranch? And yeah, is it going to be a three-year payoff, a five-year payoff? You know, what, what's the payoff? So yeah, we're, I'm constantly running all these models, you know, in Excel sheets and, you know, explaining to our investors like, Hey, okay, we're going to invent, invest in this much fencing, this much water pipe, you know, and here's the payoff and we're going to get this, you know, higher price for our beef because we're going to be able to show the soil test and, you know, the landscape function gains and all this. And, you know, we're going to be able to communicate that to the customer in some way that's very meaningful to them, you know? So it's, it's a lot that goes into it and um, it, it can be risky without, I think, really, really, really doing your homework, you know? And yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I don't know. It's hard because, you know, the average rancher, I, you know, what's the average herd size you, you, you've, you've, you talked to a lot of ranchers, but what's the average herd size in, in the country? I think uh, official government statistics, I think is 42 or 44. Right. That might not be exactly correct, but right. it's 40. It's definitely in the 40s somewhere. And average age, I think, is 64 now. Okay. Has it started coming down yet? <laughs> no. Yeah. Like yeah. And that that's a I mean that's a whole separate scary conversation. Right, yeah. But I guess my point in that asking you that question is, you know, I was telling you about Servando Diaz and Chihuahua and he's got 2000 head, you know. So the investments that he makes in infrastructure on his ranch do daily or multiple days per, you know, move and on our social I'm hoping to document that trip down there cuz you know, he's got hills and, you know, Again, the labor situation might be better down there, but, you know, he's, you know, he, he a, a doubling of his rate means, okay, I'm going from, I think he was, he was at, he's already doubled. So he's at 800 or he was at 800 head. Now he's at 1600 or 2000, right? So like the, the gains from putting that fencing single strand high tensile or double strand high tensile in you know, to kind of subdivide the ranch a little bit more and do polywire, you know, he gets that back pretty quick in being able to run more animals, right? So if you got 40 head, you know, and, and but then again, you're not, you probably don't have as big a land base, you know, so I don't know, you just, you got to be real detailed on the numbers. And I think the nice thing is, is it is, we are finding ways, I think, to fence cheaper and cheaper to be able to train animals to you know do this kind of 
grazing. Um, but you know, still it's, it's, a, yeah, it's not, it's not easy. You know, it's a big hurdle to kind of get over. So. You said training, training cattle to get on the polywire program. And you know, even with all the roped out Coriennes that I've bought and all the ones that I uh, bought from friends, they don't get out more than once or twice. If you keep good, real hot charger, they learn yeah. to respect it, especially if they know that if they do get out, somebody's going to show up with a horse and a rope. Right. <laughs> it's it's funny I say that. It's like, you know, Coriantes have reputation for being wild and crazy. Yeah. And I get that. Stereotypes exist for a reason. It's true. Yeah. I, right. I'm just, just speaking truth here. Uh, but I've had several of them over the last few years that have needed to be roped. And it's kind of funny because guys will go out there and they'll start swinging the rope. Cow will be like, she'll start to trot off. Like, okay, I kind of remember this, but as soon as they hit that rope, hits her horns, she just lays down. <laughs> she just laid down. and was like, all right, I'm caught. Now what? Right. Right. And, uh, she was actually going somewhere else because she liked to crawl out of fences and wouldn't stop doing that. Like she wouldn't mess with the poly wire that was at 12,000 volts, but, you know, she would literally crawl through the barbed wire. Didn't matter how tight it was. Like I would go out there and tighten it. And before I left, she'd be sticking her head through then, you know, a leg and then the other leg. And I'm like, you're bleeding chick. What? Right. That. Right. Right. She care. So yeah. At that point, she needs to find another job on someone else's ranch. For sure. <laughs> so I, I got a couple of my buddies to come out. They roped her. Like, it's like I said, as soon as that rope hit her horns, she just fell down. And just stopped like, okay, you caught me. I'm not going take the rope off so I can get back up and get some food. Didn't do that. Just brought the trailer over and back the trailer right up to where she was. And she's like, Oh, trailer flip that rope a couple times. She stood up and walked into the trailer, turned around and stood there. My buddy reached in, flipped the horns off, then went back and closed the gate, and hauled her off like good riddance. <laughs> bye. Bye. See you later. But, uh, and then the last one that we had to have, the last one we had to rope, she did the same thing. Like, get the rope on her horn. She just lays down. Oh, interesting. Now I had, yeah. I had one crazy one that as soon as she saw somebody come in the pasture on a horse, she was in the other corner. Hmm. Yep. Definitely. Yep. Definitely old rodeo stock on that one. Right. Yeah. A lot of personality in those cattle for sure. But yeah, it's it's probably fifty fifty between our herd quitters between the Angus and the and the Coriani. But again, we haven't done. We did daily moves last year, multiple times per day for probably two months. But it wasn't super. Yeah, it, they got good, but then you don't you don't move them for a while, and it's you know they're only good as their recent training. So yeah, we're you know we're we're getting there. When I was doing four times a day, like I was working my first on my first ranch, I worked with a herd of Barzona cattle and they were super hard to train to the wire, but I finally got them done and I should have trained them when they first got there with like a fixed paddock with the, you know, electric on the inside. And I didn't do that, but finally got them trained. And then I was like, okay, so that's how you do it. So yeah, it's it definitely, I, you, you can't underestimate that, you know, in terms of but what's nice, I guess, is once you have multiple generations on the ranch, and I don't know if you've seen this, but they they teach their 
their young ones, you know, eventually if they're kind of born into it. So they know that the fence is probably going to be hot. And they know that when the little, that when they're real little, that I don't care if they walk right under it, like the, building a calf proof hot wire fence is too expensive. It just needs to be mostly cow resistant. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And, and the charger needs to be hot. Um, and if you're still yeah. having problems training cattle to your charger, I would suggest trying a Taylor Cyclops. Okay. Is it, if you're using like a speed, right, a Gallagher or a true test, mm -hmm. they're going to, they're going to fire slower and you can hear that on your tester, right? Mm -hmm. If you have a tester that beeps whenever it pulses, you can definitely yeah. that on a tester. So it's, you know, a Taylor will be faster. Okay. The tailor will be way faster. So, and here's the difference. So you have a cow. Yeah, they'll want it. They're going to try it. They're always going to try the fence. She sticks her head under there and finds something good and doesn't get a shock, takes that step. Then the wire gets behind her shoulders before she gets, before she's been in contact with long enough to get a shock. Right. Because it takes the energizer so long to deliver a shock. Whereas the tailor, it's like, bam, bam, bam. And Quick, gotcha. a lot higher chance of hitting them on the face or the neck, make them back up instead of go forward. For sure. Yeah. Are you doing single strand or you guys do a, a grounding wire? Single strand with a ground return. Like gotcha. Two wires is expensive. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I mean, two wires <laughs> almost doubles the fencing cost. Right, right. <laughs> and I, I use a uh, I use a three eighths inch fiberglass post with a little steel clip on the top. Mm -hmm. I, when I see guys using a metal post and a really cheap plastic insulator, the cost all that doesn't really cost a whole lot less than the whole fiberglass post that I'm using, mm -hmm. you, you know, having a, having a really cheap plastic insulator on a steel post on an electric fence doesn't make sense when you can have a steel clip on a plastic post that's non-conductive. Right. Why are we hanging our electric, why are we hanging our hot wire off of a ground rod? Right. <laughs> That's just me. Yeah. No, I get you. We're, we started out with some of those wide posters, they call them star posts out of New Zealand or Australia. They're good for getting through real tough country, but we are ordering a whole bunch of, uh, like those tumble uh, wheels that, that the fence goes through and you just kind of roll it and the, the fence rolls along. No, 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 no. That's, uh, yeah. I, I can see why you're, you're thinking that was a star, but the star post is like, a better description is the Y post. It's just, it's not like a T post, but it's, it's got a Y formation. They're all black and they got holes going all the way down. Okay. Um, yeah. It's pretty common in Australia. Yeah. And uh, so we ordered some from there and uh, they go on the ground. Great. It's not like a flange T post at the bottom so they can come out, but we don't really remove them, but you can kind of adjust the height of the wire. And we've been going with two wire um, just for, you know, cause we get pretty dry and, uh, we don't really have good grounding. So, um, yeah, we're, we have the grounding wire that goes in through the fence too, you know, so hot wire and a grounding wire. So they got to hit both to get a good shot, but they're pretty close to one another. So, um, it's been working good for us, but yeah, we're moving to, for the line posts, we're moving to that fiberglass sucker rod. I think it's half inch is what we're getting the real thick one that can like be used with a, uh, pneumatic, you know, post driver and 
get in the ground probably just as easy as these star posts. I think there still will be some situations where we'll need to use a metal post to kind of get in the ground because we're fairly uh, granite-based soils and occasionally you'll run into a vein, you know, here and there. But um, yeah, I imagine rocks yeah. happen on the mountain ranch. For sure, yeah. Yeah. When it's, you know, I, you, you keep saying sandy loamy soil, which is, you know, very similar, which is what I have a lot of. And when it's dry, I can solve a lot of fence problems, like low voltage problems by going and irrigating my ground rods. Right. Yep. You know, like make a small hole in the bottom of a five gallon bucket, fill it up with water and set it right by the ground rod and let it just drip, drip, drip. So it soaks all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I imagine if I was dealing with the like the amount of rain as a normal thing that I got this year, I'd probably I'd probably seriously start thinking about running on ground wire. That might start to become an option just because of you know the amount of time and effort that it takes to go out and water your ground rods, especially if it's a permanent thing. I mean, if it's going to be right. a thing and that's the way life is going to be from here on out, well, yeah, maybe it's time to go ahead and put a ground rod in there or put a you right. know, like a ground wire in there. Uh, yeah. So to circle back, you know, you're asking me about my fencing. Um, so I, I've posted about it on socials before, but I, I use a small diameter cable for my fence. Okay. I mean, those plastic posts. It's like a 1.9 millimeter cable. Um, and it comes on a, a two mile spool for like 400 bucks. <laughs> hmm. it's, wow. it's pretty cheap to build fence that way, especially, you know, the, with the fiberglass post and the metal clip, it, it, it's pretty reasonably inexpensive where you spend where I spend more money is like on the end fittings. Like when I've got to tie off to a post, you know, cause you got to have something to tie off to and then the fittings to do that. And, you know, things like things that people don't think about, like gate handles, um, jumper wires to get from one fence to another, <laughs> you know, just things like that. That'll almost nickel and dime you to death. Um, yeah. a lot to the cost, but I'm starting to rebuild a lot of that. And I call it, temporarily permanent or permanently temporary fence mm-hmm. i can mm-hmm. move it no big deal i mean i I've, I've got a wire roller i can i can go out and i can roll up the wire i go pick up the post go move it no problem but it's not the easiest thing in the world to do i mean right poly wire is at least 10 times easier even though poly wire is probably three to four times the cost you know and and the step-in posts are like um you know, I, of course, I go off on a rant about you know insulate, you know insulator versus conductors for your electric fence, and yeah, you step in post, and it's basically a steel post with a little piece of plastic on top. But that's something different than just you know the the old you know rusty wooden thing with a cheap co op insulator that I see a lot. Um, so yeah, I I do you know I have a lot of poly wire, bunch of reels, bunch of poly wire, um, bunch of step in posts bunch of bat latches um so yeah we've it's always fun to play play around with stock density and rest periods and and see what responds to what yeah yeah for sure well, you better really wrap up i gotta get out of here yes sir so where can everybody find you on the internet we are at perennialpasturesranch.com and yep, that's our site. We're also on Instagram, Perennial Pastures Ranch, I believe as well. All one word. 
Uh, we're also on Twitter at Regen Ranching. We are, I think that's it for now. I'm on LinkedIn. I got my own personal Twitter. Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much the sources right now. Okay. I heard there's somebody um, you'd probably get a kick out of on Twitter. I think uh, her screen name is Recovering Vegan. I okay. Think, I think she changed her t- Twitter handle to Recovering Vegan. Uh-huh. Um, or, or just go to any, like either Sean Baker or Paul Saladino's Twitter feed. And just yeah. the last month, I bet they bet one of them has retweeted a bunch of her stuff. But she's uh, so on recording day, I think she's she's less than 40, but more than 30 days in to her journey of being a carnivore as a wow. vegan and she's diarying the whole thing wow it's it's pretty cool and that's interesting. uh yeah she was just posting the other day about some hate mail that she was getting from some vegans and they said well the reason that you weren't thriving as a vegan is you weren't taking the right supplements and she posted a picture of this big like tote of bottles of supplements she's like since I went carnivore, I quit taking all this crap and I feel better. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I'll check her out for sure. All right. This went a lot of fun. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate you. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate the time. Great being here. All right, gang. Have a great week. All right. You too, man.